This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. This is the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This is the fourth in a series of special episodes that come from the Game Changer and Big Think Speaker series in the whatschoolcouldbe.org archives. To join future conversations, go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. Keep in mind, the audio comes from Zoom webinars, so expect a couple bumps and knocks along the way. On the other hand, the conversations you will hear are incredible for their depth and insight into what school could be and what could be school. Educators worldwide are striving to connect their students to classrooms and experts in ways that humanize the world while preparing them to thrive in the 21st century. In this remixed, remastered Game Changer conversation, Jennifer D. Klein, author of the Global Education Guidebook, takes us through the steps and strategies needed to set up equitable global partnerships that benefit all learners founded in the tenets of global citizenship and global competency. Hosted by What School Could Be's Susanna Johnson, the Director of Global Curriculum and Coaching Development, and Kopono Siadi, the Executive Director, this conversation ranges across a number of topics and themes which will inspire you. A product of experiential project-based education herself, Jennifer D. Klein, taught college and high school English and Spanish for 19 years, including five years in Central America and 11 years in all-girls education. In 2010, Jennifer left teaching to begin Principled Learning Strategies, which provides professional development to support authentic, student-driven global learning experiences in schools. She has a broad background in global education and partnership development, student-driven curricular strategies, inclusivity, and experiential inquiry-driven learning. As a former head of school with extensive international experience, Jennifer facilitates dynamic interactive workshops for teachers, leaders, and students, working to amplify student voice to provide the tools for high-quality project-based learning in all cultural and socioeconomic contexts, and to shift school culture to support such practices. Jennifer is also committed to intersecting global project-based learning with culturally responsive and anti-racist teaching practices. And her experience includes deep work with schools seeking to address equity, take on brave conversations, build healthier communities, and improve identity politics on campus. Jennifer's first book, The Global Education Guidebook, was published in 2017, and her second book, The Landscape Model of Learning, co-authored with Kopono Siadi, was released in July 2022. And now, here is Susanna Johnson and Kopono Siadi's conversation with Jennifer D. Klein.
my name is Kona Siari. I'm executive director of what school could be, and I'm joined by Susanna Johnson. Good morning, Susanna. Thank you, Capono. It's a thrill to do this today. Um, so Jennifer Klein is our esteemed guest today, and um, she's amazing, but a product of experiential project-based education herself, Jennifer taught college and high school English and Spanish for 19 years, including five years in Central America and 11 years in an all-girls school, in all-girls education, excuse me. In 2010, um, Jennifer left teaching to begin principled learning strategies, which provides professional development to support authentic, student-driven global learning experiences in schools. Um, she has a broad background in global education and partnership development, student-driven curricular strategies, inclusivity, and experiential inquiry-driven learning. As a former head of school with extensive international experience, Jennifer facilitates dynamic interactive workshops for teachers, leaders, and students working to amplify that student voice. To provide the tools for high-quality project-based learning in all cultural and socioeconomic contexts and to shift school culture to support such practices. Jennifer is also committed to intersecting global project-based learning with culturally responsive and anti-racist teaching practices. And her experience includes deep work with schools seeking to address equity, take on brave conversations, build healthier community, and improve identity policies and politics on campuses. Her first book, The Global Education Guidebook, was published in 2017, and her second is slated for publication in 2022 with um, our other co-host today, Capono. And as an education leader, writer, speaker, and bilingual workshop facilitator, Jennifer really strives to inspire educators to ship their practices in schools worldwide. And I realize that's a major introduction and a lot to consider and think about. But what I love the most about working with and, and talking to Jennifer is how accessible she makes all of these big concepts and how they all are able to come together in a way that is very easy to understand and also easy to put into practice right now today. So I look forward to hearing from you, Jennifer, just all the great wisdom that you're about to share with us. So thanks so much and welcome to the Game Changer for What School Could Be. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to get a chance to talk about this book and to do anything I can always to, to try to support educators who are trying to do this kind of work um, better and more often in their classrooms. So thank you for having me. So, you know, Jennifer, we're, we're really lucky we launched uh, this book study with you with this book, and it's really neat to be able to talk to you about this. And what I'd like to start with, and I'd like to get your, your take on, is, is the idea of global education, global mindsets. You have a really clear definition of the two of those in your book and also some really practical applications for them. Why is global education and why are global mindsets especially important today? Great question. Thank you, Capano. Um, I mean, I think they've always been important. I'll start by saying that. I, I have certainly watched what happened uh, in my own education and over the last you know, three, four decades where we have seen more and more this global connectivity, um, which has become the norm, right? We see each other more and more. Our travel among countries becomes easier and easier. And with the advent of the internet, we just all started finding new ways to connect. And so, you know, often people will say, well, I want to make sure I'm preparing students for when they start to engage with the world. And I think the realistic answer is, no, they're already engaging. If they have any sort of a device within their access, then they're already engaging with the world. And the question is how well they're doing it, 
right? I think the most important piece of this is that we live in an increasingly connected world and the majority of the challenges that we're facing around the planet are in fact orderless problems, meaning that they're problems that we all share. And so our ability to collaborate with each other, to understand each other's needs and priorities and to hear each other's solutions in a real way is the only thing I can think of that would allow us to truly, uh, you know, change those problems, solve those problems. Climate change is a perfect example of it. Although I was reading, you know, systems theory back in the 90s, early 90s, um, and understanding, you know, everybody was saying very clearly, you can't put a Band-Aid on a problem in one country and expect it to to be solved everywhere. And climate change is a perfect example, or human trafficking, right? These things that move beyond, across our borders, and that will require a very concerted, collaborative effort globally. So I think if we're raising young people to see themselves as globally connected, if we're you know raising them with the skills that they need to be able to be a part of constructive collaboration in that sense, um, then we can take them so much further and our world will be a better place because of it as well. So for me, I mean, it, it comes to, to some degree from a passion for education and the experiences I want kids to have. And it comes from a desire to have an impact on the state of the world in general <laughs> as much as I can through that work. If you haven't read the book yet, and to help us set a frame, tell us a little bit more about the global mindset and specifically, what does that look like for a student? Well, I think, you know, from my perspective, a global mindset is really an ability to value what everyone brings to the table. Um, and what I mean by that is a willingness to really open-mindedly um, and try to understand other cultures. Within a lot of movements all over the world, the, the word tolerance comes up, right? Whenever I have teachers doing, you know, brainstorms of what did they think global competency looks like, or, or in another term, intercultural competency. And a lot of time that's times that word tolerance comes up, and I use that often as an example of not quite being the right bar yet, right? Because tolerance is just, I, you think differently than I do, and I put up with you. Right. But I probably don't appreciate you or uh, like like you even <laughs> potentially. Right. I just have learned to tolerate or put up with you. And I think that's a really low bar to set. So I think that the globally connected kid, um, the, the kid who has that global mindset uh, recognizes that that's not the case. Right. Recognizes that that they are, in fact, connected to the world that they have that interdependence with the rest of the world as well. I hear that term global citizenship a lot. And yes, I think the word made it into the book in a few spots, right? Um, but even the term citizenship is such a Western term for what it means to be a good human being and to recognize your connectedness with the rest of the world. So for me, I guess, you know, it's funny. I don't, I, in the book, I'm not even sure I put it this way, but I've realized over the last couple of years that interdependence might actually be the core term for what we're really striving for. I really love that and the concept of, of interdependence versus global citizenry. And, and even now, as we think about what you're talking about in the climate change you know, example, this is really everybody's problems are each other's problems. And, and I, I love that perspective. Um, and so it kind of leads me to a couple of questions. But the first one is that related to the fact that the Global Education Guidebook was published in 2017. And you cite ideas in there from the 1990s, but as we all know, so much more of this is relevant now and um, more than ever, and, and everything has changed. So what has evolved in global education practices um, since you've been doing this research and this work and through the past few years? And 
Um, in, in addition to that, maybe perhaps you can answer the question of how did you see the unfortunate pandemic affecting global education and how did that shift your all of your thinking with all of this? Well, yeah, uh, thank you for the question. I think, you know, I think in a lot of ways, even before COVID, we were seeing more and more connectivity and more and more teachers getting excited to get on board with global experiences for their kids. Um, and I think the, you know, the three years after publication, basically everything in the book is still 100% relevant, except for maybe a couple of the organizations that may not exist anymore or the technologies that are named, right, that have shifted because technology keeps shifting so quickly. And, and I was very intentional, too, in the chapter on technologies. I was very intentional, actually, about making sure that it was geared less toward this is the specific tool I think you should use and much more toward decide what you need out of the tools that you use, <laughs> right, first, and then figure out what's the right tool to get you there, um, which is a much more effective way to approach it. But I think, too, that the educational field, I mean, global education, just before the pandemic, we were still teaching, having to teach teachers how to do the basic connection to be on Zoom with their kids in a video conference sort of setting. They were still just beginning to figure out how to get students less awkward and uncomfortable being in front of the camera. You know, they were just, I mean, I was sitting down constantly and teaching people how to use Zoom. Three months later, the pandemic had everybody using it, right? And so I think that's the biggest boom that we have when it comes to today. You know, it's the, the biggest opportunity. We have this this world of so many more educators who are in fact connected. Now, on the bad side, we have all these educators who are now terrified about learning loss, um, who haven't had much professional development in a few years, and who may or may not feel like global is an essential element of their curriculum. And that is something that I'm confronting right now around the book and around that kind of work with schools, is that a lot of schools are saying, no, that's something we can't do right now. It's just nobody has the bandwidth for more training. Nobody has the time, the energy to think about something new. And that's all connected to an old, old perception that global education is sort of marginal fluff, right? It's that thing you do on Friday if you have enough time after you finish your curriculum. Or it's that thing that's relegated to the global studies, studies teacher, teacher, right? And then there's that just that one person or maybe the service learning coordinator, right? But maybe you have two people who are really the heart of what we mean by global global on your campus. And I think that's a shame too. I mean, I think it's worth saying since we're talking to educators that we've got, I mean, global, there are global connections to everything we do, right? Um, in school, there are ways to build a bigger mindset around what all of this means in everything we do. And I think too, that our disciplines, all of our disciplines are at the heart of solving most of our biggest challenges as well as a, as a world. Um, so I think it's a, a missed opportunity when we think of it as fluff or that thing we're going to do at the end when we have time, because there's so much we can do with it right now. So, you know, I think one of the things that we really share as educators is this concept of meeting students where they are. Mm -hmm. uh, and specifically for deeper learning, what does that look like for you? And what does it look like in the context of global education? That's a great question. You know, I think it, there certainly there are some questions about what's developmentally appropriate, right, when it comes to students and what would make the most sense at given age groups. I use several examples in the book, actually, that try to illuminate, like with younger students, you might try this. With middle-aged students, you might try this. With high school, you might try this. You know, I think I certainly wouldn't want to 
address war, for example, with first graders or second graders, right? I would choose my topics carefully. And we know that developmentally, our youngest learners will really understand what's most concrete for them, right? And so global might for them mean somebody who comes from another culture, but's right here, lives right here with us wherever here is, right? Who comes in and speaks to the students and shares some of their practices or shares ideas or gives them feedback on something they're trying to create, whatever it might be, right? But we're talking about making it really concrete for them as opposed to we're talking to somebody who lives on the other side of the world and pointing to it on a map. I actually remember very well asking my older niece when she was about five, there was a world map on the on the wall and I asked her, do you know where we live? And she said, we live in a house, Tia, don't be silly, right? We live right here in this house. And I was like, no, I mean on the map. And she was like, we don't live on a map. We live in the house, right? That's a perfect example, right? A five-year-old can't even conceptualize of we live someplace in this picture of the world. That doesn't mean anything to them, right? So for those younger students, I think it's important that we choose topics that are about connectivity and building empathy and building friendships. Those I've seen be really, really successful, share our, the way we ha- you know, practice our different holidays, um, those kinds of things. Keep it a little bit lighter, keep it a little bit more fun, make it a joyous yes. experience, right? And then as you go up in developmental ages, you can get into some of these harder topics. You can get students working with global partners on something more meaty and intense as they're able to really handle that, right? And really conceptualize a life in another place. But I think it's it's all gonna come down to, in a lot of ways, the developmental levels. talked about making things concrete for kids and then you also give us some really nice concrete examples uh, as far as what it might look like developmentally. I've seen you work with teachers and I've seen the kind of topics, projects, assessments, experiences you're able to facilitate. I mean, if somebody hasn't seen you work in a school with teachers, with students, can you give us some concrete examples? Like what does this work really look like? What does this global education work really look like? Absolutely. I'm glad to get concrete. And I'll share actually the specific examples that I use in the book because that'll, uh, you know, connect a bit more. At the early years level, the example I used was the Teddy Bear Project. This is a project that the IRON organization has been using forever. And IRON is the International Education and Resource Network, really the grandfathers of global education all over the world and global partnerships all over the world. And in that project, uh, students in, in, in various countries, sometimes it's just two, sometimes there are more than two, pack up a teddy bear or some other type of stuffed animal, and they send it off on a trip to another country, right? Another classroom. Um, simultaneously, that other classroom is doing the same, packing up some kind of a stuffed animal from their end and sending it off on a trip to the other classroom's uh, country. 
Then the teddy bear lives for a month or two, sometimes more in the host country, right? This is for students who can't travel yet, right? And the the youngest students are able to, you know, they all take him home for homestay at my house tonight. And they take pictures of him at the dining table and they, you know, take pictures of him at different landmarks around town. And of course, from an academic perspective, there is an opportunity to do so much fun stuff around, you know, writing the journal of the teddy bear and taking pictures in different places and putting together little albums and buying souvenirs and and then ultimately send the teddy bear back to its home country with all of that stuff inside the box. And the recipients then have this incredible inquiry experience that they get to have, right, where they can and they can still ask questions of their partners on the other side of the world. We didn't know what this meant. What was this object? But in terms of just early learning inquiry skills. It's just incredible. At the middle school age, I often recommend programs that are focused on identity and on the identity politics or challenges that a given school is facing. And so the the example that we that I used in the book came from Global Partners Junior. I'm not sure if this program continues, but it was a program out of New York that was done in coordination with New York City government. And it was basically connecting middle school students all over the world. And there would be a specific theme each year. And the theme that I talked about in the in the book is was a theme around gender and culture and identity, right? So students, for example, were looking at their local flags and deciding whether their flags accurately represented who they felt like they were and things like that, right? And they were sharing art um, and they were sharing, you know, all sorts of cultural components with each other about who they are with the ultimate goal of figuring out who they were, not trying to tell somebody else who they were supposed to be, of course. And at the high school level, my favorite example does hinge on climate change. It's a program put on by the Center for Global Education out of Alberta, out of Edmonton, and in coordination with Taking It Global out of Toronto. And what they're doing, the program is called Decarbonize, Decolonize. That's a new title. It wasn't called that four, four, four or five years ago. But the idea is that they're bringing together groups of students all, from all over the world. We just invited Egypt, actually, your school, Capono, <laughs> this week, and They're working with schools all over the world and students are collaborating bilaterally, trilaterally, multilaterally to share their ideas about what they locally believe the challenges and solutions to climate change are. And then ultimately they work together, representatives from each of the schools work together to develop a white paper that's actually presented at the conference of parties or COP that fall, right? So students are able to do some really significant work on climate change, but they're also able to amplify their thinking to an international body. And it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, project. The addition of the layer of decolonize came up because the students themselves discovered that there were more problems with carbon emissions in colonizer countries and colonized countries than in not, right? So they started to make that connection several years ago and the program made the shift according to to student voice and agency. That's really amazing. Thanks for those uh, really concrete uh, examples. It's easy for us to get our head wrapped around really big ideas like uh, global education, global competencies, global mindsets, if we can see it in action. Susanna, I actually wanna get your voice in this for a second. As a coach, for what school could be out there working with schools yourself and seeing, you know, what this looks like for what school could be, specifically this idea of meeting students where they at with deeper learning. Are are you seeing synergy in that work that you're doing through 
our playlist and our deeper learning work to, to some of the things uh, Jennifer's working with schools in right now? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot going on all over the world with different pockets of people who are meeting students where they are. And the whole innovation playlist that is related to student-driven or student-led learning practices is really a great resource to start that thinking and that process. Great videos, great questions and, and ideas that come along there. But what I, I hear and what was striking me so much is this, that Jennifer talks about is that concept of student agency, which is near and dear to my heart in a big way. And what's happening in a lot of different places is I even see some examples of people who are in this call today who are making it happen and meeting students where they are and just sort of shutting out all the noise that is related to outside expectations. Um, and that's not to say that we're ignoring the communities that we are in and a part of. We're not, we're not ignoring our parents, our families and their concerns and their needs. But we have to recognize that when a student walks through the doors in the morning, whether they do physically or they do virtually, they are walking into their learning as themselves in whatever space they are in and how they are. And they show up as whole humans every single time, good, bad, and otherwise. And we've got to really think about education being this really strong, holistic student agency process where it's their journey. It's not about what I want for them or what you want or what Jennifer wants. It's about what they want for themselves to be learning. And what does that mean to be in charge of your own learning and to have that concept of student agency? So I, I really love what Jennifer's talking about. And we're seeing a lot of those pockets and a lot of people are using the playlist, but they're building micro schools, schools within a school to kind of make a little space to try this out where it's not this Friday thing or this after school thing. It's something that is embedded in the work that is happening every day. And there are a lot more teachers who are starting to dip their toes in this water of like, well, it's very efficient and easy to give voice and choice in small things, whether it's the decision about the topic of a project or what they're going to focus on for a book or elements of a story. But it's also really interesting to, to see when, what happens when they say more than voice and choice. What if I just let the students tell me what it is that they're interested in? We start to make that connection. And I think that that leads me, if it's okay, to uh, another question, Jennifer, um, Early in your book, you say, and this is a direct quote from you, direct connections with people are essential if you want to get students to a place of authentic citizenship, which is when students can realistically understand or empathize with others' needs because they have met and collaborated with them personally. And I'm thinking of an example from your book where there were those students in Colombia working with students in Canada on the coffee, the coffee beans and the coffee projects. That That's the, the example that I'm thinking of. Maybe you can share a little bit about that. But the question is, what conditions cultivate those direct connections? And you've already spoken to some concrete examples of that, but how do we take those direct connections? What cultivates that? And then how do we take those direct connections and cultivate equitable partnerships rather than the savior-save relationships, which I know is something that you also feel strongly about in terms of your writing? Absolutely. Well, and it was one of the things that I most wanted to make sure was contributed to the conversation about global education, right, was that concern I had overseeing so many projects that started with one uh, school or community deciding that the other school or community that they were going to connect with needed their help and support. And therefore, their role was basically charity, right, to somehow save the other school. Um, and the example of the coffee sales was a great example of flipping that, right? So um, it was a story of a group of students in, in uh, Canada who were connected with young people in coffee producing regions. But what they wanted to do in Canada was raise money for them um, and for their school. And so they decided that they would buy really cheap coffee in Canada 
and sell it there, right? And send the proceeds rather than trying to help to leverage relationships for that coffee producing community, right? So if we can help, you know, if the community already knows what they believe is the solution to their problems, we don't help them very much by just throwing money at them, right? And in fact, we create that imbalance of, you know, well, they've got this idea and we'll we'll help them make it happen, right? Because they need our money to be able to do it. And I think the, you know, the shift toward what would it look like for the school in Canada to help create new avenues for fair trade for that community? How could they help to make sure that that community is getting a fair price for the coffee they're already producing? What are the elements that we can offer? Maybe we have some uh, you know, connection that's a privileged connection, but it's, we're not talking about, you know, we're just going to send you money and it's going to fix everything. Right. Um, and I remember first really getting concerned about this element when uh, reading evaluations um, with an organization I was working with. And these were evaluations from students after going on these service learning trips, coming back and saying, I feel like I really helped so much. And I was, and they really needed our help. And, you know, we painted their school and I'm, yeah, I'm so proud of how we helped them. And our response was, oh God, that's not what we want at all. Right. We want them to come back saying, I learned so much from them. Right. Living in their community took me to a whole new understanding of my life and their lives and all of that. Right. So, you know, I mean, obviously the most authentic connections and relationships happen when we actually sit down and break bread together, as my parents would say, when we when we share a cup of coffee, when we sit at the kitchen table together, right, and and talk about our lives with other people. But not everybody can do that. And I think the core of it really is a learning from and with mentality. Um, and the example that I used in the book that I hope helped to illuminate this was a partnership between a, cl- a class here in Denver at the Denver Center for International Studies in Montbello and a class at a girls' school, I believe it was, in Jordan. Um, And this was facilitated by Global Nomads. And basically what happened was rather than trying to solve each other's problems, each school chose a local issue that they were concerned about, right? So the kids in Denver decided they were really concerned about water because we just had a bunch of cases in the mountains of discovering that these mines had been poisoning water sources and things like that. And they knew about things that had happened in Flint and they didn't want that to happen in Denver as well, right? So the kids in Denver were really focused on water quality in the Denver area. The kids in Jordan were concerned about drug use among their peers and seeing more and more of their peers fall into these awful, deadly habits. So each school really worked on its own problem with feedback and support from the other school. And I thought that was the perfect magic combination, right? So instead of we can fix this for you, you know, the Jordanians kids were coming and saying, look, this, these are the ideas that we've had. What, what's worked in your community, right? And the kids in Denver were said, well, when it comes to drug use, here are some of the things, the programs that exist, the things that we do to try to keep our peers from ending up in that. And the Jordanian kids were their consultants for the Denver kids on water quality and some of the things that they were doing in that regard, right? So rather than coming in with any kind of a mentality of I know how to fix for you, it was how can we work together, right? How can we feed each other with ideas that come from another context and set of cultural values and experiences without suggesting that you don't have solutions already yourself? I really love that idea of having another partner help you solve your own problems. I've been asked to set up study abroads before, 
And a phrase that stuck out to me that actually hits home for me as an indigenous person, as somebody with native Hawaiian ancestry, uh, is ensuring that, that this work doesn't turn into, and this is the phrase, a poverty safari, where we get to um, gain the perspective about how lucky I am, how lucky my kids are by going and seeing how, how those kids live. Uh, and so that example was really, really important. Kind of in the same vein, there's a question from Howard Blumenthal um, in the chat that I, I wanted to elevate right here specifically. What Howard said is, uh, in my experience, most students in the U.S. and Europe and teachers know very little about Africa and Asia, which happens to be the place where most people live. Also, most have never heard of countries or cities where the majority of people live. How do we shift the conversation so it reflects where people live now and where they will live, say, by 2050? You know, one of the things that I think is interesting is that the sustainable development goals give us a framework for both rural life and urban life, right? And so I think that's one of my simple answers, I guess, or direct answers is I think that um, sometimes framing around the sustainable development goals can help us get at more of, of, of that reality. But I also, you know, I'm going to be really honest. I don't think kids almost anywhere really know their geography either. I'm actually a big believer in geography class or even better in geography being embedded into all classes whenever relevant, whenever possible. Not because kids need to be able to read maps anymore in the same way that they used to, but because it is kind of embarrassing that students still and adults too, frankly, will refer to Africa as a country, right? Um, or as opposed to a continent who don't know where uh, a given place is in the world. Um, and it's not that I think we have to always know that. I mean, obviously we all have phones now, right? We can pick up the phone and find out where that country is. I would love to imagine a generation of young people and and the adults, right, who we're educating right now, who will be those adults in 2050 in charge of everything, who go looking for that information, right? Who, when they hear a term like Kenya, the first thing they wonder is, what are the cities and where do people live in the rural areas? And what do they raise and what are, what, how do they earn their money? And that the world would spark curiosity, right? And make us want to know more and make us inquisitive and make us go looking for more, right? As opposed to, well, Kenya, I mean, I think it's a country, must be, you know, in that African place, right? You know what I mean? Like really cultivating that interest in it. I hope that educators are finding ways to make those connections. So for example, Howard, if you are working with students or schools where you feel like they don't have those connections and they don't have those understandings, by all means, that's where you should focus your partnerships, right? Start working toward some of these relationships with places that students may not know much about, and we can help to, to combat that. I'm going to make explicit a question that I know you've gotten before. As a diversity, equity, inclusion practitioner, sometimes global competencies have been pitted as a detractor from DEI work. And so there's some serious conversations about equity and justice in the U.S. that I'll preface this by saying need to happen. So are these two things, diversity, equity, inclusion, work, and global competency, are they by definition 
at odds? Are they, is there synergy? Is there disparity? Talk a little bit about that. So I think where they end up at odds is where schools spend their money and attention, right? So the comment when I've heard it the most has come from schools that have you know, every month in their newsletter, there's some flashy picture of kids on top of camels in some part of somewhere, right? <laughs> you know, uh, in other words, the service learning trips become the flashy photo opportunity, right? And so money is spent there and it ends up coming across as though it's being elevated over something else that we know locally matters. And that's part of why very often, actually, and particularly as a head of school, I would have parents who would ask me, why are we focused on global when we've got so many problems here locally? And they're not wrong, right? Um, they're not wrong to say that. We do need to make sure that we're grounding it in the local and that students understand the, you know, whatever challenge we might be looking at, you know, may exist everywhere. But I do think that, I, I think there really is more synergy than not. I mean, I think that when you look at global competency, and there are lots and lots of definitions for what is a global competency, right? Every global educational organization has made their own matrix. And when I work with schools, I always say, let's look at a dozen different ones and let's create the one that works for you, <laughs> right? Because there's no one global competency framework that I think is perfect for every school. But let's put that side by side with a framework for intercultural competency, and we'll discover that the goals are really the same goals, right? And so I find myself more often than not feeling like there are certain things that are easiest or easier to do in a global setting than in a local setting when it comes to pushing kids a little bit out of their comfort zones with harder conversations, right? So I'll give you an example. When I was doing work bringing Palestinian voices into U.S. classrooms, and there's a whole chapter on controversial partnerships and hard topics and all of that, right? That was some pretty hard work. But I was I found that students who talked to a poet, who you know viewed the photographs of a young photographer living in the West Bank and then had the chance to interview him and talk to him, they were able to understand his perspective quite easily over time, obviously. And it was actually easier for them to practice that kind of inquiry and that kind of intercultural communication when it happened on a video screen with somebody who lived on the other side of the world. For some reason, it seemed easier than turning to the kid next to me and saying, are there things that are different in how you're being raised, right? And what are the values that you've been brought up with, right? And I noticed that in particular with Muslim students in the classroom or with students of Arab descent in the classroom, right, that who would be sitting there kind of going, this is really great, but when do I get to share my story, right? When do my peers actually turn to me and say, so what's your experience, right? So so I think that that actually global can give us an opportunity sometimes that is an easier path or a smoother, maybe it's not easier, but it's a smoother path perhaps than, than the direct engagement of these diversity and inclusion topics right at home. Um, and right now, given the, the sort of political landscape and all of this challenge that so many teachers are, are facing, I mean, I know so many teachers who have had to put aside curriculum that, that was good curriculum um, because of these things going on. I would encourage them to go the global route until this cools off, um, because I think you can often accomplish many of the same things, maybe not all of them, but many of the same things through the global um, without it sparking quite so much controversy, at least if you choose less controversial countries and cultures to engage with. The next question is is maybe a, a big one, but it's you sort of answered the first part of it. 
with so many global competencies being defined, how do we get to a shared definitions? And what you talked about is taking all of the different models that are out there and all the different things and coming up with our own definitions. But then I have to ask the question of how do we assess global competencies? But- <laughs> That's a great question. Or feel free also if you want to, to define like what are what are some of your shared definitions or what are some of the things that you think are absolutes when it comes to human um, cultural universals as well as global competencies? Absolutely. Well, I think I'm a big fan of any global competency matrix, which includes behaviors, first of all, right? So I don't think it's enough to just think differently. It has to change how you behave, right? I don't remember if I used this example in the in the book or not, but, you know, I, I worked in an all-girls school for 11 years, right? And the number of times I heard the girls flinging around the B word in response to each other, right? Yeah, calling each other bitches. Basically, I'll go ahead and say the word, um, was really mortifying in an all-girls uh, environment. And I would always, I would spend time in class breaking down where did that word come from in ninth grade, trying to help them think differently about being in a community of women as they as they entered high school. But in the end, I mean, they would avoid the word like the plague when they were in front of me. But the real question, and I always said this was, will I hear you using it in the bathroom or the hall, right? Did it actually influence the way you behave in a day-to-day sense, right? So I think that's part of it. I also really believe that there should be an action component, Um, when we think about global competencies as well. But as I said, I don't necessarily, I would caution that that action isn't necessarily let's fix things for somebody else, but what can we learn from the world that would allow us to make things better right here, right? Um, And those, I think, are the most powerful projects that, that students can do. And I think that action is really, it's an essential element of all of this. And how do you, how do you define that or how do you evaluate them? Well, so you know, PISA is working on this right now, right? The PISA exams, they've made it a priority. That's a good thing from the perspective of global educators. But sometimes when I look at their evaluation strategies, they feel, I don't know, they feel examy. Do you know what I mean? They don't feel authentic. They don't feel like they necessarily really measure what this should or could look like, you know? So in, in the book, I, there's a whole chapter about assessment because obviously it's always that, that challenging piece. Um, and, you know, I certainly always recommend the co-construction of rubrics and things like that with students, right? Asking them, what are you learning about? What are the things that you think are coming out of this experience that are the most valuable? How do you think that we can, you know, measure it or evaluate it? I believe I actually used the example of a rough uh, rubric for empathy, Uh, for example, in the book, right? What would it look like to build a rubric for empathy? And so I would go back to something that I learned from PBL Works or what back when they were the Bucket Institute, which was the use of the Y chart with the, what do you see, what do you hear, and what do you feel, right? When something is happening as opposed to when it's not, right? So when people are being empathetic, what are the things that you would hear see and feel. And even though feel is a very subjective term (laughs) and might be problematic in some schools, I think we're talking about pretty subjective elements of character, right? And so I think think having kids involved in that is really powerful, having them come up with the evaluation and and strategies. And maybe too, I'll go ahead and, and be a little more polemic to Susanna and say, maybe we don't have to. Maybe we're too worried about always evaluating and maybe it would be okay if kids just reflected a lot and self-evaluated. And we as the teacher didn't need to ever say, you're not empathetic enough. See, you're in the second column instead of the fourth. 
that's uh that's an interesting avenue to go down because assessment uh what we could or should assess is really near and dear to my heart paul tough in one of his books talks about uh, about some of these really complicated things that you're talking about here and one of the things that stuck out to me in, in his writing and his thinking uh was that before we even start assessing our students in these really complex skills and these really complex strategies things like creativity and and communication and global competencies we need to assess or maybe a better word is uh, do an audit of our educational experiences we're providing students so before i i as an educator should be even thinking about scoring a student a three in empathy not even really knowing what that means to be a three in empathy for example right how many opportunities am i giving in my school environment to practice empathy and to grow in empathy and that that might be a more valuable starting point for assessment than even uh, getting into the actual assessments uh, of these skills and students. So th that, that was a really uh, poignant idea you brought up. Susanna, I actually just want to toss it to you for a second. Um, as, as in your coach role, you've worked with lots of schools and kind of bridged the work that what school could be is doing with what they're doing there. And one of the conversations I'm hearing is, is, is still really important, is this conversation about assessment? Because we know in schools, the accountability of assessment the value proposition to the work that's being done. So if we're saying project-based learning of global competencies is important work, how do I, as a, as a school leader, as a school system leader, or as a classroom teacher, how do I show the value proposition of that, that this was valuable time? Well, what are you saying, Susanna, as some important assessment strategies that might piggyback on what Jennifer is saying or, or maybe at a different, a different vein altogether? You know, what's interesting is that it comes right back around to the beginning of the conversation, Jennifer, and talking about that student agency piece and, and you know, step one of dipping your toe in the water of this is let students in on the gig in terms of how are we assessing them and evaluating them. If they're not including students in developing your assessment tools and rubrics, then we're missing the mark. They can define for themselves what an A would look like, whether it's about empathy or about the ability to cite good sources in a paper, right? They're, they know what it's supposed to look like and they can tell you what that is and then they can evaluate that for themselves. And in terms of that, I think about evidence and students being able to share that evidence of learning that if they know what it is that they're supposed to be learning, they can share how well they've done it as well as what is the evidence that points to, you know what, I know how to cite sources because here I did this and I did it in the right way and they're all good quality sources, not just things I, links I found on the internet and things like that. They can point to that stuff which also comes back around to more of the observable behaviors. And we don't use observable behaviors enough when it comes to assessments. We're, we're often looking at pieces of paper versus what's happening in the classroom. Do you hear those students using the terminology that you're trying to get them to use? Are they understanding key concepts? Are they putting into practice? Are they problem solving? Are they able to speak the language of whatever it is that you're trying to um, get them to speak the language of and, and showing that evidence? And so I think that a lot of the assessment practices that are out there and a lot of what's talked about in our innovation playlist, authentic assessments has to do with pulling back that curtain. And then my final piece is always, the more you ask the students, the better. And so not just student reflections, because I think that's absolutely essential and important because they will tell you what they're thinking, feeling, what's working, what's not working, all their strengths and challenges in one fell swoop if you ask them to reflect on their work, but also their own evaluations of themselves, where they have that opportunity to maybe not check that box of a one, two, or three, but to say, you know what, here's what I was going for. Here's how close I got to it. Here's where I can improve. Because not only does that inform 
where they are, but it informs where they're going next. And again, it keeps them on that path of owning their own learning for that that journey. So well, it, I think we're seeing a lot of that. Yeah. And it's, a, and it's a level of metacognition that's so powerful, right? I mean, teachers ask all the time, how do you teach critical thinking? Well, there you go. <laughs> right there, right? The ability to reflect the layers and weaknesses and how to get to where I want to be. Like that's as at, that's as high level as it gets, right? Um, I, and I agree with you completely. One of the main things that I suspect holds teachers back from having kids more involved in establishing the criterion and really talking about assessment is a, is a question of trust. And I say that with all due respect to educators because I think it's just a fear, right? It, it's a, a lack of trust that comes from a fear of, well, if I open it up too much, the kids are going to lower the bar. And in my experience, they only raise it. <laughs> like that's all that ever happens is that they raise the bar actually when you start talking to them about what they think the criterion should be. Plus which then they're not just, you know, trained dogs jumping through hoops, right? That we've set up for them. They're, they're learning to think for themselves about who they are, where they are and where they want to be. That's really amazing. So that makes me think about Anybody who's listening right now, right? Educators, classroom teachers, school leaders, how do we start? Well, so, I, you know, I think it's important to recognize that there is a whole continuum when it comes to what you can do in global education, right? Um, and that continuum can even include experiences that don't have direct contact with other human beings, as long as the resources you're using are really, really good and really humanizing in as many ways as possible. But I think, you know, a lot of times educators, I notice, you know, sort of beat themselves up. Well, I don't have time and it's going to be so big. And, you know, let's think of the of global projects as, as a few different specific forms, right? So you can do these sort of, you know, back and forth kinds of experiences like with the teddy bear, right? Where they don't necessarily even have to connect synchronously for that to work, right? So if it feels too complicated to have conversations directly, well, then, you know, try something like this. Although obviously they would be richer with the conversations. You can also do collaborations as in that middle school project, right? Where we're doing different things, but we're feeding each other with some feedback, right? Um, and then, the, you know, the highest level perhaps is co-construction, as in the case of the, the white paper, right? The students creating this white paper for COP, where we're actually trying to construct something together. Those are varying levels of intensity and not all teachers are up for it. I would say first steps are usually just make a connection. And I've found that a lot of teachers who don't have the bandwidth for really trying to establish collaborative curriculum and all of the communication involved will just say, okay, you know what? I want my students to get a chance to talk to experts in the course of this year. And I want those experts to not just be down the street. I want them to be people all over the world. And when I say expert, I'd like to clarify that I have two definitions for the word expert. One is the one that most people think of, right? Which is somebody who's working on this issue, right? So if we're studying water and water quality around the world, the expert is the person who is developing the next best well system or the next best pumping system or the next best filtration system, right? Somebody who's in global development, who's trying to solve this challenge in real terms and who can talk about their work. But the other expert is the person whose well is always dry by noon, who has no access except to the dirty water in the river, 
who may even walk for water daily, and who knows what it means to be without water. And that's the other expert, right? So so I think if teachers make an effort to, and, and there are lots of ways to find these partners, right? The, the person who's experiencing a lack of water may be the harder one to find than the expert in filters, but, um, but the networks exist. And that's part of what I do too. I was once called the match.com lady for global education because I'm constantly trying to make those kinds of connections for people. So anyone is welcome to reach out to me if I could be of help, I will certainly try. But I think that's a really easy starting point, right? Is let's just say we're going to have a couple of people connect with our classroom this this uh, within this unit, within this project, within this semester, um, and and build from that, right? Uh, um, and the bigger ideas may come or they may not, but it's a nice way to. I, I think everything on the curric- on the continuum is valuable for kids. So it doesn't matter if it's just one mystery Skype and that's all you can do. <laughs> it's still something. Um, and that, so that's my best advice is just dive in and try something that you feel like you have the the energy for and the connections for and then go from there and see if you want to build bigger. Excellent. Well, as our time comes to an end, I want to thank Susanna Johnson, my co-host for today. Susanna, it's been really great having this conversation with you. And most importantly, Jennifer, Really appreciate your time. This has been a, a super insightful conversation. Amazing high-level uh, thinking and philosophy. And I'm really appreciative of the really concrete strategies and examples you were able to give today. And finally, for uh, everybody who joined us live and everybody who's watching the recording, thank you guys so much for making the time to be involved in this game changer. Have a great evening. These special episodes are edited by Kim Diltz and Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take good care. <laughs>